0: Hi everyone, I'm Josh and this is The Emerald Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens. The podcast where we explore an ever changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald All that's happening on this green jewel in space. Happy Hallow's Eve, everyone. I'm pretty sure you know these lines from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Double, double, toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Fillet of a fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake. Eye of newt and toe of frog. Wool of bat and tongue of dog. Adder's fork and blind worms sting, Lizard's leg and howlet's wing, For a charm of powerful trouble, Like a hellbroth boil and bubble. It's what you could call an archetypal image. Three old crones standing above a black cauldron That sits simmering over a fire. They add a dash of this, a bit of that, They stoop and stir and pause to sniff the heady brew, which roils and bubbles like a primordial sea. What's in there? we ask, feeling both revulsion and an undeniable attraction. Of course, we want to see what's in that cauldron. We want to gaze into the murky, bubbling depths. We almost don't want to, but at the same time we can't resist peering into that primordial broth. Even though if we do so, we know we might see things that are pretty gross. You know, half-boiled snakes and lizard eyes and such. And who knows, if we were to actually take a drink of that crone's potion, what would happen to us? It could be poison. We could drop dead on the spot. Or it could be magic. It could make us lose our rational senses and fall forever in love. It could be powerful medicine, a few drops, all we need to heal all of what ails us. Or it could even, perhaps, be the immortal elixir itself, the nectar that resurrects the dead and gives everlasting life, the most advanced medicine of all. Cauldrons, cooking vessels, have been part of the human experience and therefore captured the human imagination for a very long time, The archetypal imagery of crone and cauldron has deep Celtic roots. When the Catholic Church started to get itchy at the notion of any source of power that wasn't theirs to control, cauldrons started to be cast as evil, inevitably tended by warty hags and used for evil purposes. For a cauldron is, in a sense, autonomy, the power to prepare whatever one wishes over a fire of one's own making. And so, modern-day Wiccans have reclaimed the cauldron, seeing it as a time-honored vessel of potency and power. Power and stability in the midst of a sea of roiling change is how the ancient Chinese rulers viewed the cauldron, or ting, which embodied their rulership. And in Indian tantras, the cauldron becomes synonymous with the universe, and of course, by extension, with consciousness itself. While in the West, the cauldron was driven underground by witch hysteria, It was also reborn as the alchemist's crucible, the vessel in which the great work of the transmutation of base metals into gold takes place. And in the deep magical traditions of the African diaspora, there exists still today what you could call cauldron cults, in which the cauldron is the central object of power. All of this, of course, harkens back to the most primal of human experiences, cooking, putting things into a pot and boiling them, All one needs is fire, water, a vessel, and time, and transformation is guaranteed, all in a simple cauldron. Today, we'll dive into cauldrons, inner and outer, and maybe we'll come out the other side transformed on this episode of The Emerald. You've probably been to Vietnamese or Chinese restaurants with menus of creative and questionable English. And if so, then perhaps you've seen that old perennial favorite menu item, ten things mixed up together in the pot. How long have humans been putting things into pots and boiling them? What magic that is and how powerful it must have seemed to those who first mastered the art. One has to imagine that as long as there have been vessels... Humans have stuck them on top of fires and added things to them. There's a certain creativity to it and a certain wonder, a sense of what's going to happen when we mix this all together. Because, you know, cooking changes things. And so from the earliest times, the cauldron is synonymous with transformation, and a transformation that specifically gives life and nourishment. Therefore, the cauldron is like a womb, a round, heated vessel that nourishes and even produces life itself. And of course, at the same time as it is a womb, the cauldron is also a tomb. Whatever is being cooked that day goes into the cauldron and dies there, and in dying that thing is born again as medicine or potion or simply soup. As author Kobe Michael Ward says, the cauldron is the womb of the great mother goddess. It contains the potential of all creation, sparked by the flame of the Father who is the impetus of the universe. Heated by the primal fires of the active energy, the dark waters of the primordial ocean begin to boil and writhe with life. Like the great creator, sustainer, and destroyer, the cauldron is a vessel of manifestation, transformation, dissolution, and resurrection. The cauldron is a microcosm for the universe. Cauldron as a universe. It probably didn't take long at all for early human beings to see that a cauldron was a whole lot like the world itself. Movement and change and transformation, all transpiring within the circular vessel of space. A heated container and stuff happening within that container. Things dying and changing so that other things might grow and thrive, all in this great vessel. (laughs) As above, so below. The early alchemists based their art on this simple and ancient creed, taken from the emerald tablet of Hermes Trace So when they cooked their elixirs and did their experiments of heating substances to extract refined essences, there was always a sense that the work they were doing was a reflection of processes that were happening in the greater cosmos. This recognition is spelled out clearly in the early Upanishads, where it is noted that the cooking fire, the fire of the human belly that digests food, and the fire of the sun itself are all the very same fire, and in the vision of the Congolese sorcerer who sees creation as a process very similar to the heating of a cauldron in which latent energies are sparked to action by the potency of fire and stars and cosmic bodies alike arise from the heating of primordial forces in the cauldron of empty space. And just as the macrocosm is like a cauldron, so the cauldron is reflective of the macrocosm, its simple processes akin to universal processes. So if one wants to affect the universe, one does it with a cauldron, for in that simple pot are all the primal energies of creation. There's a story from the old Celtic legends. Martin Shaw retells it in his book, A Branch from the Lightning Tree, and he starts it off in his typical vagabond way, Quote, Back when the world was young and full of charming wolverines, a sorceress, Caridwen, once composed a draught of raw magic in a vast cauldron. It's an old tale brimming with magic, Keridwen puts into her primal cauldron equal parts knowledge and inspiration, and she sets a young man, Guion, to stir it for a year and a day. She intends to give it to her son to offset his foul nature, and she only needs three drops. The rest will be lethal poison. But the fire is stoked high, and the cauldron cracks and overflows. Three drops hit Guion's thumb, and the rest of the cauldron's contents flow outwards, poisoning all the village horses. Gwion flees, and an enraged Keridwen chases after him. With his newfound powers, he shapeshifts to evade her, first into a hare, and she becomes a wolf, a fish, and she an otter. Finally, he transforms himself into a morsel of corn, and Keridwen in the form of a bird, eats him. But Guyan's power from the cauldron is too much. Upon returning to her womanly form, Keridwen finds she is pregnant and knows that Guyan has regenerated inside her. She gives birth to a child who she intends at first to kill, but when he is born he is beautiful, with a brightly shining brow. And so she names him Taliesin, Shining Brow, And he goes on to be the greatest bard of legend, as he was born of three drops of pure inspiration. (laughs) ¶¶ The ancient Celts sure liked their cauldrons. Cauldrons are repeatedly referenced in the Celtic myths and songs, and in fact were said to be the source of inspired song itself, and were the centerpiece for many druidic rituals. I remember such cauldrons distinctly from the Asterix comics I read as a kid, in which the local druid, Getifix was always heaping mistletoe cut with a golden sickle into a bubbling cauldron. In another Celtic story, we hear of the Pair d'Adeni, the cauldron of rebirth, which brings people back to life if they get inside it. The hero, Efnesien, sees that the Irish, the enemies of the story, are using the cauldron to revive their dead. So he hides among the Irish corpses and is thrown into the cauldron by the unwitting enemy. He destroys the cauldron from within, sacrificing himself in the process. <laughs> As sacred objects, Celtic cauldrons were deliberately and ritually prepared, infused with energies that would boost the cauldron's power. They were often buried in the earth for a full lunar cycle, rubbed with oil and medicinal herbs. The wood used in the fire beneath the cauldron was chosen deliberately so that the cauldron would be infused with that tree's qualities. This care of the cauldron in the Celtic traditions bears a striking resemblance to how such ritual objects are treated in the cauldron cults of the African diaspora. In his book, Palo Mayombe, the Garden of Blood and Bones, Nicolai de Matos Frisvold speaks of the centrality of cauldrons in certain Congolese traditions and lineages. Quote, the Nganga can come in a great variety of forms. The forms most well-known are those utilizing terracotta or iron cauldrons with a skull in the center encircled by sticks. The Nganga is composed of many levels. All of them carry deep meanings and direct powers. The cauldron itself, circular and solid, defines the world and the womb of the Nkisi or spirit. The various metals used in the construction of the Nganga are both a memory of the metallurgic heritage amongst the peoples of the Upper Congo as well as being sacred representations of the powers of Mopungo or the divine as they manifest in stars and planets. Healing cauldrons, Frisvold explains, will have dirt from several hospitals or clinics. The sticks are of utmost importance. The sticks turn the womb of earth, fluids, and metals that is the cauldron into a magical place, the forest of the hills of Mayombe. All African cultures conceive the forest as the place where the veil between worlds is particularly thin. The woods must therefore be chosen on the basis of understanding which woods naturally draw which vibrations and energies. In addition to this, bones are essential. Seashells are also a necessity for riches and fertility, and feathers for spiritual flight. Machetes around the perimeter provide protection for the center of the cauldron, and a central stone, the thunderstone, the matadi, serves as an axis for the cauldron. The nganga is a delicate jewel to construct, Frisvold says, and takes a minimum of one month to assemble. Because all along the way, the shaman or sorcerer is purposefully and meaningfully interacting with every component that will form the cauldron, so that the work is spiritually thorough, potent, harmonious. Once complete, the cauldron is not viewed in any way as a symbolic representation of this, that, or the other. It is a living being, a living member of the lineage that has a name and a spiritual presence. And here's where it gets interesting. The word nganga is both a sorcerer and a cauldron. In fact, little difference is seen between the body of the sorcerer and the body of the cauldron. So the cauldron is also a being, and we ourselves are cauldrons. <laughs> It's not so hard to see the human being as a cauldron, for what are we fundamentally if not heated vessels of water? The vision of human body as vessel is an ancient one, at least as old as the word body itself, which means, of course, bottle or vessel. Cultures around the world have spoken of the body as a cauldron, and even envisioned localized cauldrons within the body, the abdominal cavity is a cauldron, in the vision of the Chinese internal martial arts, called the golden stove, and the heart is also a cauldron, the crimson palace, and then, of course, the skull is a cauldron, a sea of elixir. In his book Tai Chi Chuan and Meditation, author Da Liu says that in the internal practices of Qigong and Tai Chi, the essential energies of the body are refined by, quote, heating them in these cauldrons into more rarefied states. Like the alchemical practice of heating the cauldron to refine base metals, yogic practices have historically sought, through breath, movement, invocation, and meditative concentration, to heat the energies of the body and send them upward, into the cauldron of the skull, until the cauldron brims over or cracks open, and the medicine, the potion, the reservoir of prana, or the sea of elixir that sits in the skull, is released. This rupture, as we've spoken of before on this podcast, is the launching of the yogic practitioner into the trance state, or the state of divine inspiration, and is envisioned as a great release in which the head is flooded with nectar, or pineal gland excretions, or with the bliss of the feeling of universal oneness. With this yogic vision in mind, let's return to the story of the birth of Taliesin, or the shining brow, a story so brimming with yogic imagery it could be the subject of a book unto itself. The cauldron is filled by the mother goddess, with pure knowledge and divine inspiration. The young man, or the yogi we'll call him in this case, stirs the cauldron until it releases three drops. The power of the drops of concentrated inspirational energy rocket the yogi into a state of rupture. The cauldron cracks. And after this rupture, of course, the yogi is never the same again. He cannot live as he has lived before. The goddess herself devours him, devours his old self and absorbs him into a state of universal oneness, where he is returned into the primal womb of the infinite and then reborn as a child with a shining brow a skull radiant with refined and illuminated consciousness, a realized yogi who has drunk the nectar of immortality that lives in his own skull. This heady brew of divine inspiration, as described in the story of Taliesin, was called Awen in the Celtic traditions, and it was said to be the source of true poetry and song. It was the bubbling broth of a cauldron, the luminous froth of the trance state, but it was also an animate goddess, and the bard, the sacred singer, lived drinking from this cauldron, this eternal source of sonic and poetic power. In one of the rarer Arthurian tales, sixty short lines sung by Taliesin himself, King Arthur raids a fortress in the mysterious Celtic otherworld in order to find a pearl-rimmed cauldron filled with divine inspiration. Here's how Charles Squire describes the fortress and the cauldron within. Quote, The strong-doored, four-square fortress of glass, manned by its dumb, ghostly sentinels, spun round in never-ceasing revolution so that few could find its entrance. It was pitch-dark save for the twilight made by the lamp burning before its circling gate. Feasting went on there, and revelry, and in its center, choicest of its many riches, was the pearl-rimmed cauldron of poetry and inspiration— kept bubbling by the breaths of nine British Pythonesses, and by that he means muses or nature goddesses, so that it might give forth its oracles. If one knows anything of the yogic texts, the luminous pearlescent cauldron of eternal inspiration within the fortress can be nothing other than the reservoir of pranic energy in the skull, often described as moonlike or pearlescent. And so the quest for the cauldron of divine inspiration is ultimately a meditative quest, A quest for the state of oneness, a quest for the spirit. As the Dialogus Miraculorum says, the soul is a spiritual substance of a spherical nature, like the globe of the moon or like a glass vessel that is furnished before and behind with eyes and sees the whole universe. A cauldron with a pearlescent rim, a glass vessel rimmed with eyes, the awakened soul. So the journey is an inward one, and the goal ultimately is to claim the cauldron, or break it wide open, or to release somehow the liquid that lives inside it, or perhaps even to move beyond it entirely. Like our friend Efnisian. The hero who saw that the dead were being placed into the cauldron and revived, then dying again in battle, then being revived again, over and over again, and saw that he had to break the cycle. So he acted dead, in other words, practiced deep meditation, and broke the cauldron from within, sacrificing himself, and thereby freeing himself of the endless cycle of death and rebirth. skulls. So yeah, the alchemical work of the cauldron happens in the skull itself. The sorcerer's work with the cauldron, Friesvold says, quote, is the work of the skull, and the Congolese cauldron is constructed around a skull that becomes the head of the cauldron being. In the Tibetan Tantric traditions, the cauldron is literally a skull. Tantric practitioners use cups made of human skulls, usually those of teachers within their own lineages, as ritual objects, as offering bowls and meditative ceremonies. Simultaneously, within the skull of the living practitioner, the universe is envisioned as a great offering cup, an alchemical cauldron, a skull within a skull. From the book Ch' Sacred Teachings on Severance by Jamgun Kontrul. Imagine that the feast tray itself is a skull cup, white on the outside and red on the inside, equal in size to the billion-fold universe. Eventually the skull cup is filled, in the mind of the practitioner, with the radiant light of the sun and the moon, the resonance of sacred syllables, all dissolves into the cauldron of the skull until it is full to the brim, a great ocean of undissipating elixir, white with a tinge of red and bluish light, totally permeating the realms of the world. And of course, never to be outdone in their practices of ritualized self-sacrifice, the Tibetan tantrika constructs a meditative and imaginative scenario in which their own corpse is, butchered, pounded, split, sliced, and heaped into the skull cup. Fire blazes up and heats the skull cup, boiling the ocean of flesh and blood until all the impurities spill over and dissipate, and what remains are rays of tricolored light. So consciousness itself becomes an offering platter, and the sacrifice of the individual self in favor of the eternal is the meal that is prepared in the cauldron. Soup, anyone? In 1937, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst named Carl Gustav Jung stood in front of a room full of European intellectuals who were gathered at a conference center in Erano, Switzerland, and gave a lecture in which he discussed the visions of a 4th century Egyptian alchemist named Zosimos. It must have been an interesting sight, all these tweed-clad 1930s professors politely listening as Jung began his lecture. I wonder if they were prepared for what they were about to hear. Because, how do we put this, those visions of Zosimos were not exactly subject for polite company. In one of Zosimos's visions, he comes to a great altar and meets a figure named Eon, who calls himself the priest of the inner sanctuaries. Eon then impales Zosimos with a sword, dismembers him in accordance with the rule of harmony, which means he quarters him, separates him into four limbs and four elements. He then takes the pieces of Zosimos to the altar and burns them in a giant cauldron, until all the gross matter dissipates and all that is left is spirit. The next night, returning to the same altar, Zosimos finds a man being boiled alive, yet still alive, who stares right at him from his roiling bath and says to him, The sight that you see is the entrance and the exit and the transformation. Those who seek to obtain the art enter here. His visions continue over the next few nights, replete with limbs and organs and various body parts and boiling cauldrons and such. I can picture Jung finishing up his lecture and asking any questions to a silent room of northern European academics. The visions of Zosimos are, of course, a yogic or alchemic feast day, no pun intended. The central image of the visions is the act of sacrifice, the sacrifice of the individual ego and the transmutation within the cauldron of the skull into higher consciousness. And there are some beautiful steps along the way. For example, do you remember the podcast episode I did on violet light? The purple luminosity of the deep meditative state, the samadhi state, the state of union with the ultimate. This violet color is called in the Greek mythic imagination, eon. So when Zosimos approaches a great altar, and meets the priest of the inner sanctuaries, whose name is Eon, there couldn't be a clearer image of the journey of the practitioner into their own skull, into the deep meditative state. And of course that priest, the awakened consciousness itself, dismembers Zosimos and burns him in a great cauldron. The small self is sacrificed and cooked away at the hands of Eon, the state of universal oneness bliss, the larger self. So here, the fire of the cauldron is the death of the self. The cauldron is the fire of radical change. It is a place to be feared, which is why so many fairy tales feature unsavory characters in huts in the centers of forests with ominous cauldrons where unsuspecting children are to be boiled alive and eaten. But it is also a place to be sought out. Which is why, in those same tales, the cauldron or the hut or the witch herself are rarely the evils that they seem to be, and often the key to the protagonist's transformation. The cauldron of inspiration, say the Celtic sagas, does not feed cowards. Sometimes we just have to dive right in. Hence, the half boiled man says to Zosimos that the cauldron is the entrance, the exit, and the transformation creation, destruction, and rebirth, the way, the path the life, a trinity of experience, and the cauldron is the trinity itself. Remember those three crones tending Shakespeare's cauldron? Yeah, he didn't make that up. He drew it out of deep Celtic memory, a memory that still whispered of the triple goddess, maiden, mother, and crone, the universe in its triple aspect, birthing, dying, rebirthing again, past, present, and future, below, middle, above, all within the cauldron of infinite space-time. So the cauldron of Keredwin emits three drops that propel the hero into the state of potent inspiration. Just as the yogi has to unite three energy channels as one to reach samadhi, to merge past, present, and future into the broth of the infinite, just as the skull cup of the Tibetan tantras emits three-colored light, and the Congolese cauldron is constructed with, you guessed it, three legs. Traditionally, says frieswold prendas were made in three-legged cauldrons. The metaphysical aspect is that the triplicity of the vessel coincides with the triplicity of soul, body, and mind. The Hindu tantric goddess Tripurasundari, the beautiful one of the three worlds, is said to string the three worlds together as a garland within the great cosmic saucepan that is the universe. And our favorite bard Taliesin sings of the three aspects of divine inspiration that arise splendid from the source. The source, of course, is the cauldron. And oh, did I happen to mention that the word for cauldron in the old Celtic tongues is the same as the word for God? <laughs> Let's bring it all back to the simplicity of a round vessel boiling over a fire, perhaps full of nourishing soup, and the light of the hearth is warm, and the smiles of the loved ones are close. Love reveals itself where there is an able vessel, the Bhakti Sutras say, a phrase as simple as the love that shines through the cooking of a good meal, and as deep as the alchemy of the universe. This great cauldron in which we come always learning what it means to make the mind, body, and heart able vessels to receive love. <laughs> This episode contains references to several books, articles, movies, etc. These include Macbeth by William Shakespeare, Fire Burn and Cauldron Bubble by Kobe Michael Ward, The Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trace Majestos, A Branch from the Lightning Tree by Martin Shaw, Alchemical Studies by Carl Jung, The Tower of Alchemy by David Goddard, Tai Chi Chuan and Meditation by Da Liu, the Mabinogion, the great compilation of Celtic myths and legends. The Dialogus Miraculorum. The Adventures of Asterix and Obelix by Gosenian Uderzo, The Bhakti Sutras, and a great translation can be found in Bill Mahoney's book, Exquisite Love. The Goddess Within and Beyond the Three Cities by Jeffrey Litke, And for the postgraduate alchemists among you. Palo Mayombe, the Garden of Blood and Bones by Nikolai Frisvold. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder.